Um, was last week helpful? Did you go home and feel like you had a million questions? Yeah. Did you see the news a little bit differently? Okay. Um, so as, as I knew it would, um, it, it brought up a lot of questions for people. And um, questions like, well, when's this all going to happen? And, you know, what, what should I do? And here's what I discovered in all the questions that I got this week. That we do not have a really good view of what heaven is. Because I believe that if we knew and understood what heaven is, because wouldn't you agree with me as a follower of Jesus for him to tell us that we're going to be in heaven once we take our last breaths, that that would be pretty important. We should probably know what that place is, right? It's like me saying, hey, I'm going to take you on a trip. And you just voluntarily say, all right, I trust you. Let's go on this trip. And then I end up taking you to the slums of like a fifth world country where the potential of you getting hurt are very, very high. I mean, wouldn't you want to know where you were going before I got you on, on the bus to go on the trip? I think a lot of times as believers, we, we know there's heaven, but we've never really asked the question of what is that? And if we understand that the words of Paul when he says, hey, if you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus, I'm going to be in heaven, and if you leave me here, I'm going to preach, to really understand the depth of that comment, to understand why can Paul say such a thing? Because when you have a full understanding of what heaven is, these things that are happening in the end days... They don't affect you internally because you have something to look forward to. We all have something, something to look forward to. And, and I think as a believer, the thing that we have to look forward to is there's going to be a day where for all eternity we're going to be in the presence of Jesus. That everything that we've read about, every single story we've read, every verse we've remembered, every experience we had in church, every conversation that we have with God, every time we heard from God, it's all going to happen face-to-face one day, and that should get us excited about, about that. I mean, heaven fascinates us. We, we hear it. It's all in, I mean, think about, um, what, do you, what do you think about when you think about heaven? Let me ask you that question, because I've asked this question to people, too, this week, and, and I, get, um, I get all kinds of answers about what heaven is. You know, some, some would say heaven would be the University of South Carolina win a football game. That would be heaven for some. Some would say um, heaven, I, I imagine, like, it's us going up in the clouds and, and sitting on a cloud, and I got these little angel wings, and I'm playing a harp all day at, at some people. Listen, if that's heaven, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be playing the harp all day. Uh, it never really sounded enticing to me as a child when they said, well, we, you're going to die, and you're going to go up into the air. And then what? You're going to be with Jesus forever. Doing what? Well, you're going to sit on a cloud all day. No, I'm good. I'll, I'll find another something else. I, I like to be in with Jesus saying, but sitting on the cloud playing the harp was not for me. So when I say heaven, there's certain things that come to your mind. Maybe it's songs. There's a lot of good songs out there. I mean, uh, Hank Williams Sr. said everybody wants to go to heaven, but what? All right, for those that were able to answer that, we know you're very classy people. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Isn't that true? I mean, Led Zeppelin wrote a song called Stairway to Heaven. Um, Guns and Roses stole from Bob Dylan. And they said that they're doing what on heaven's door? Knocking on heaven's door. Why do, we, why do we even need to learn about heaven? Why do we, why do we need to, to, to turn to the scriptures and read about it and have a full understanding of it 
If you're a believer, you need to know where you're going when you take your last breath in this place. And you need to know. And you need to know that you know that that's the destination that you're going to get to. So I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. There's this discourse that's taking place at the Last Supper. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In just a couple of hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested. He's going to find himself alone. He's going to be brought back. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be put into a tomb. And three days later, we know the story. Jesus will be resurrected. But right in the middle of this conversation, right here in John chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus is teaching the eschatology. He is teaching on end times and judgment and death right here in the middle of the Last Supper. And he says these words. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, God, uh, and also believe in me. In my Father's house are many what? Say this with me. There are many what? Okay, the KJV says there are many mansions. That is a horrible translation of the original Greek. The original Greek translation is going to say, there's in my father's house, and there are many rooms. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit to, to help clear that up for you. If it were not so, would I have told you these things? Jesus said, if this wasn't true, would I have even talked about it? Um, so if, if it wasn't true, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am you may also be. So what is he saying? Well, the first thing we see about heaven, heaven is the presence of God. It is being in his presence. Matter of fact, that's what the word means. It means to be in the presence of God. Two times in this passage, Jesus refers to heaven, you ready, as a real place. Not some fantasy land that's made up up in the sky. He, he says this is a this is a real place. Heaven is the place where God resides. On the cross, Jesus is, is being crucified. And there are two thieves beside him. And, and one of the thieves look at Jesus and he says, Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, Today, finish this with me, you will be with me in... You know what the translation for the word paradise is in the Greek? It's Eden. E-D-E-N. You know what that place is? Well, we don't know physically where it is anymore, but we'll find out one day that he's saying, you will be with me in Eden, in paradise. It's an interesting Greek word there, because what it means is a, a walled garden. It is the other word for the garden of Eden. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the garden, where God creates. God makes all things good. Every time that he creates, he says, and it was, say it with me, it was good. So he gets to, to he gets and he realizes, oh man, I created this dude named Adam, and he's all by himself, and he's lonely, and it's the first time that God says this is not good. So he creates for Adam a helper. And so the Bible gives us this understanding. Jesus is teaching and saying that there, there was paradise. It is Eden. Today you will be with me in paradise. Did you know this? The Bible begins with a garden. We get to the book of Revelation, and you know where the Bible ends when all things are restored and all things are made new? In a garden. It was in the garden that incredible things happened, that the creation story happened. It was in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is pressed down and crushed 
so that the new garden could be restored, so that we could be in the presence with God. It ends with another garden that brings us back to perfection. Isn't that interesting? We have to ask this question, though. What happened? This is what this is where you get a little uncomfortable, but let's talk about it. What happens when I die? It's a good question. We should we don't like to think of that because it's a little morbid, right? And some people don't want to think about it, and some of you think about it way too much, right? But what happens when I die? Well, the Bible tells us your last breath here will be your first breath there. If you if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not that you're going to cease to exist. Your residence is going to change. You get a new home. You get a new place. So what happens is, let's start with the believer. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you die, the Bible says that you will, depending on, on how you view this, and, and you, I'm not going to get into all of the, the microscopics of this. You can go on and learn about tribulations and all these things. But there's going to be a moment when we die that we're going to come before what they call the Bema Seat. It's a judgment seat as believers, okay? Christians will go before what they call a Bema seat. It's a seat of judgment. And that seat is to evaluate the work that we've done on earth for God. Where do we get this idea? Well, 2 Corinthians tells us this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So who's going to appear before this seat? want to make sure we understand this. All of us, he's talking to the believers. So if you are, if you are a follower of Jesus... When you take your last breath, there will be a day that you will stand, I will stand, before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether that is good or if it was evil. Paul here is teaching the church in natural terms, a very supernatural teaching. They understood what a Bema seat was. Matter of fact, they have uncovered some of these Bema seats throughout uh, Greece and other areas. The Bema seat was a place of judgment for the Olympic Games, where they would stand on the Bema seat or sit, however they wanted to handle it, and they would judge the, the competitors on how well they did to determine who wins the Games. And so the judge of the game stands there, he cast out his judgment on who ran the race the best, and then they would try to determine... Who gets a reward for how good the race was? And then they would get rewarded. And Paul says there's going to be a day that we're going to stand before the beam of seat where God being the ultimate judge. And he's going to cast out his judgment and he's going to show us everything that we've done good. Not We always get this fear that when we get to heaven, God's going to show us this movie of every mistake we've ever made in our life. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with that. He says that your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. He's not going to bring that back up, rub it in your face. Hey, I love you, but hey, do you remember on October the 3rd, 1989, do you remember what happened? you remember what you did? He's not going to bring those things back up because you have been forgiven. The, the moment that you surrender your life to Jesus, he said that you're to run a race. Like, Jesus handed us a baton to run the race. Now, how do we do that? Well, he used the same language in Matthew when he says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing, right? That's the baton being handed over. And when we get to the other side, that's what we're going to have to answer to is how well did we run the race? Now, here's the good news. If you're standing at the Bema seat 
you're in. You're in. You, can't, you get to go into heaven. But the question is, what works do I need to do if I'm going to be rewarded on that day? Right? And so he says this in Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, don't show off all the things that you know and you can do. He says, otherwise you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. Go ahead and show off and try to, to play these things and there will be no reward for you. Okay? I believe the reward is this. And there's many teachings out there and you can fall wherever you want to fall. But I believe the reward is this, that when I am doing what God has called me to do, and I'm living obedient to the word, that the reward is God's going to stand at the Bema seat and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I'm going to see all these people that I had no idea that were affected by the gospel and the life that I lived. My reward is going to be seeing other people in heaven of how, hey, you did this. And because this conversation, or you held that door open for this person and told them that Jesus loved them or whatever it was, they're here. And we see that play out with Paul and Apollos in the, in the scriptures too. So I want you to imagine me for a second. You die. And Jesus brings you into a room and there are two chairs. There's a really, really big chair, because that's God's seat. And there's a really, really small chair. That's our seat. And there's a massive screen in front of us and the video begins to play. And as this video plays, the only thing it shows is what you did for God. What, what you have done for him, did you live obedient to what he asked you to do? And you're seeing these things. You're seeing the spiritual conversations you had at Starbucks. You're seeing the time that you went on the mission trip and you shared the gospel. You're seeing the times that you sat, um, that you sat in our children's ministry or our youth ministry and you were pouring the gospel out and teaching. You see those things play out. My question to you is, would there be anything on that video for you? Would there be anything there on your video and what would be on that video will it be a really long movie will there be a sequel or will it be a quick trailer because there's not a whole lot there this is the Bema seat CT stud says this that I love it only only one life yes only one soon will its fleeting hours be done then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's all that matters in the end. It's all that matters. It doesn't matter how much we accumulate on this side of eternity. The only thing that matters is what we did for Jesus on this side. I used to say that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, but there's been a photo that has popped up over Google over the last couple of years that has debunked that, that saying. But only what is done on this side for Jesus matters. That's it. The, there's, a, there's another line. You have the line going to the Bema seat for believers, but you also have the line that's going to what we call the great white throne. It's the throne of judgment. You do not want to be in that line. You do not want to get the signs messed up on what line you need to be in. Right? Y'all ever gotten in the wrong line before and realize you're in the wrong line, especially in the DMV? You got in the wrong line? Oh my gosh, that, that, if there were purgatory, the DNV might be the thing, right? But there's a great white throne, and the great white throne is a line that is filled with people that were unrepentant sinners. There are people that said, I'm not going to surrender my life, I got this. I can get in on my behavior and my merit. I don't need Jesus. And there's a line for them. And the Bible says 
in Revelation chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne. This is, this is the Apostle John writing this from an island of Patmos. He's, he's, they couldn't kill the guy, so they throw him on a, an island with other prisoners. And while he's there, Jesus begins speaking to him, and he begins writing this down. He says, then I saw a great white throne, and there was one seated on it. He said, heaven and earth fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And he says, and I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the throne, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their what? Their works by what was written in the books, and then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in to the lake of fire. You ever been cut from a team? You thought you made it? When I was in the eighth grade, I had convinced myself that I could make the basketball team. I couldn't shoot. Couldn't shoot at all. Didn't know the rules of basketball. Didn't even watch basketball. Played a couple of uh, pickup games in the streets, you know. But I went with all this confidence that I got this. And I went to tryouts, and I started looking around at all these other guys, and I thought, yeah, I got this. They were seven foot tall, six foot tall. They were hitting threes. I was giving them rebound practice with my shots. And I was convinced I made the team. The next day, this is like when, um, when life was real. Like you taught kids not to be little snowflakes. And they would post who made the first round of cuts on the door outside the PE coach. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and if your name wasn't on the list, everybody knew that your name was not on the list. Y'all, I walked up that list with so much confidence with my gym bag ready for practice later in the day to find that there must have been an error because they did not put my name on the list. And then my dumb self went to the coach and said, hey, I noticed that my name didn't get put on the list. I just wanted to make sure we were good. He says, your name is not on the list because you didn't make the team crushed my spirit crushed because I was not my name is not listed not even close like not even to be the water boy and it was just a moment of realization that everything I thought I had and every every bit of skill that I thought I had to be enough to make the team was not enough and see here's what's going to happen in the end of times there's going to be a list that's called Lamb's Book of Life in this, in this time at the great white throne. And people are going to come. They're going to start saying everything they've ever done for God, but there'll be no relationship there because they tried to buy their way in by their own strengths, their own merit, and our merits are not good enough. And there's going to be a great day of devastation. As bad as it is to get cut off of a team or not get the promotion or to lose the job, that fades in comparison to the day of judgment when men and women as far as the eye can see will all stand in the same line and all will await the same fate that they did not have a relationship with Jesus that by itself 
should motivate us as a church to live out the Great Commission. Because how many people can we get out of that line to standing in line with us to go get the reward that Jesus has for us? That should drive us. When Jesus returns, will your name be in that book? The moment of salvation, the moment that you surrender your life to Jesus, your name is written in with permanent ink. It's there. You're there. So, heaven. It's the presence of God. It's a place of being in his presence. But did you know this too? Heaven is also under construction. It's being, it's being built. Jesus says in John, I go to prepare a place for you. He's still building. Working on it. Well, how long does it take? It's been a while. It's been about 2,000 years. Now, I, I'm not the best of carpenters, but I think I can work a little bit faster than 2,000 years, right? But Jesus has got to build a lot of stuff for a lot of people. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What, what you've got to understand here is this is actually an addition to an already existing home. Heaven already exists, but he's going to build an addition Think about it this way. So your parents own the home, and when you get married, you moved into the home of your parents in this culture. Now some of you are like, let's not bring that back. But let me show you what would happen. They call these things, i got a photo for you to, to put this in perspective. When Jesus says, this is why the translation in the King James is a really, really bad translation, that it's not a mansion. It's actually an insula. What is an insula? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when you get married, you move back into your parents' home. So your father starts with a compound. He has his house. And then when you find your lady, you would go and build on to the house because you live. So you have aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. Everybody's living at one thing. For some of you, that just made you really, really nervous, right? But everybody, everybody knows everybody's business because everybody's living together in the insula. And they would build this together. They would live together. There was only one way in and one way out of the insula, and that's through the Father's house. Remember when Jesus said the only way to the Father is through me? He's the door. There's only one way in. You've got to go through the Father's door to get into the house. So if Jesus is building a room on an existing home, then why is it taking so long for him to return? Well, look at what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The building blocks of heaven are the believers who have put their faith into Jesus prior to death. And what Jesus is doing is he's waiting for the day when all believers will come to faith in him and the Father will say, go and get your bride. So heaven is, heaven is the presence of God, but there is a place that is being built, brick by brick, us. This is good news because this means as it's being built, heaven is also accessible through Jesus. Now I'm going to show you something here that, um, that's probably going to debunk what you've kind of been taught about heaven so I want you to bear with me for a minute and let's work through this because I believe a lot of times we read scripture the wrong way we read it through our eastern eyes right things start going wrong in America we automatically translate that as the end of the world 
because everything revolves around what we do here in America, right? Um, I don't know if you know this, the Bible was written um, to the Jewish people for us to be able to read and understand. And in order for us to truly understand the scripture, you've got to know the background culture, the historical culture, the context of what's being taught. So what I'm saying is, when you read the scripture in the Gospels, in the Old Testament, New Testament, you've got to read it through Eastern eyes. You've got to read it through Jewish eyes. Of what, it, what is Jesus trying to say here? Because what happens is we read these three verses that I go to prepare a place for you. We miss it very quickly if we don't understand the context of what's happening. This is why I like to take people to Israel. Because once I can get you to Israel, when it's safe, when I can take you to Israel, here's what happens. You start seeing it differently. It's like, oh, that makes so much more sense now that I, I see it and I understand it because you're teaching it from a Jewish context. Okay? So, we've always been taught that heaven is about us floating around, fluffy clouds, with a heart. That's what heaven is. The Bible says when Jesus comes back for his bride, he will recreate, you ready? He will recreate a new heaven and a new earth for us to live in. To live in with our resurrected bodies. We will all have six-pack abs in heaven. Amen? We could stuff out on potluck and have six-pack abs. Somebody also told me that there was no meat in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we'll deal with that later. And... When he comes back, it's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, resurrected bodies, and the only people that will populate the new heaven and the new earth are those who are followers of Jesus. Revelation 21 says it this way. Then I saw, remember this is John writing, he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This earth will one day go away. It's going to be done. When? I don't know. We talked about that last week. But there's a day that this is all going to go away. And there's going to be a brand new one. It's going to be renewed, restored, made back to what it's supposed to be. And he says, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned to her husband. Jerusalem will be the center capital of everything that happens in the new world. And he says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. He said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them, and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them, and they will be God. John says, hey, not only will heaven come down, but we will live in the presence, physical presence of God. And he will rule over his people. He says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Y'all got some tears that need to be wiped. He says death will be no more. There'll be no more grief. There'll be no more crying. Pain will be no more because all the previous things have passed away. He's saying that heaven's going to be so perfect. You're not going to have these tears. Those are going to go away. Heaven, there will be no more anxiety medications need to be taken in heaven. You will never have to worry again if your child's coming back home in heaven. You will never have the sicknesses that you have to. You will never have to sit beside a loved one's deathbed as they slowly pass away in heaven. That, those things will not exist in heaven. The only thing that exists in heaven is the life of Jesus and his presence being there forever and ever and ever and ever. And as Randy Travis said, amen. We never have to do this junk again. 
Think about your worst days. The diagnosis that you were given, that your family was given. The pain that somebody caused you or the relational pain that was caused. Never again, we will not weep over things on that side of eternity. There'll be no, no reason for tears. Why? Because he says it in the very beginning. We will be in the presence of God. And when you're with the Father, everything is good. That's what John's saying. And he says that this new heaven and this new earth, did you catch the language here? He says it's coming what? Down. It's coming down. Where's it coming down out of? It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. If heaven and the new earth are coming from there to here, then why are we trying to get from here to there? How many times did Jesus say his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven? The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is coming. All those passages, John is saying, Jesus is warning us that the kingdom of heaven is right here. It's coming right here. And, and I've, I've met people whose, whose teachings on end times just like, well, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse, honey. We don't need to do anything about it. But Jesus is going to come back and rescue us from this mess. What if Jesus has called us to make a difference right where we are to bring heaven to earth? Through living out his teachings. Is that not what God did? God is trying to bring heaven to earth through us. And if that's the case, why are we trying to get out of earth to get to heaven? It's a legitimate question, is it not? How many times did Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is here? I'll wait. Because it's a lot. He wasn't just saying stuff. He says there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Like, I don't know if you thought about it, but new heaven and earth means when everything is made the way it was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, cutting grass is going to be awesome. Because there ain't no weeds. There will be not a single weed eater in heaven. Nothing. You know how when you hit 40 and your back starts doing weird stuff? Remember, you used to take the Tylenol before the basketball game and after the basketball game? You won't have to do those anymore. There won't be any more weird aches and pains. It'll be new. It'll be just like it was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The question is, well, when does that happen? So what happens? If, if there's a, earth, a heaven that's coming here to here, and God's going to renew this, and we're all going to live in this new heaven and earth here, then what happens when we're not here? Well, when you die, you, all, you go to heaven. What does heaven mean? The presence of God. Let me, let me explain this a little bit more. The key to fully unlocking what I'm saying, so you don't think I'm a heretic. The key to unlocking John chapter 14, again, is for us to put on these Hebraic lenses and see this through the way that Jesus intended this to his Jewish audience. The key to unlocking it is reading it that way of understanding what did Jesus mean when he said this in his culture. Not ours. When you do this, what you're going to see is you're going to see this passage in a brand new light. So let me take you back to Jesus' day for just a moment. During that time period, to get married, a boy was expected to be engaged by the age of 17. Okay? 
and he had to be married by 18. Y'all got that? Anybody like, this is a good idea, we should probably go back to that kind of thing? They're expected to be engaged by 17, married by 18. He's going to go find a wife. The wife was typically going to be between 14 and 16 years old. Sounds weird in, in our culture, but this, again, got to read this through their culture. And he would go to his father, and the son would say to the father, hey, I, I'm ready, 17, ready to be engaged. And here's what the father would do. The father would say, okay, I'm going to go find a bride-to-be. And so the father would go out to find a suitable match. And he would find this girl that, that was a great match for the son. So he would say, I, I need to negotiate out a price. We need, we need to have some kind of compensation. It wasn't that, that they're trying to buy a bride, but when they pull that bride from that family, they're going to fall in a deficit because she helps do some of the things around the house as a family unit. So they're going to pay. And they would negotiate with the bride's father, and they would compensate for taking her out of the home. And what they're saying is the bride was bought at a price. So they would negotiate. Give you three goats, two rams, a donkey, maybe a camel might be in there. And they would negotiate this price, and when they would agree, they would have a meal together. And at this meal, they would come to terms with everything of the agreement that this is going to be the bride-to-be. The price that was paid is good enough. And they would have a glass of wine, and the father would say, when he would pour the wine, it was contractually, this is a done deal. We're coming back to get your bride. He was saying, we agree with the bargain. Ray Vanderling, he's, he's, um, I got to meet him years ago, and he's the one that really opened my eyes up to seeing the scripture in this way. He says this about the whole thing. He says, in ancient Israel, when it was time for a man and a woman to marry, both fathers would negotiate the bride price to compensate the bride-to-be's family. After exchanging a glass of wine to conceal this agreement, the couple was formally engaged, wanted to make a covenant, and would be willing to give his life for her. The woman sealed the engagement by drinking from the same glass. So here they are, John chapter 14, the Last Supper. And the first thing Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. After the price was sealed, the son and the father would go back to their hometown to add to the family home. You remember the insula? He would go back to add to the home. And if the girl to be married asked, when are you coming back? He would say, I don't know. I don't know when I'm coming back. Because you would think that they would just take the bride with them, right? But the bride had no home to go back to, so the the soon-to-be groom would have to go and build on to the home. And she says, hey, when are you coming back? He says, I don't know. My brothers don't know. I don't know. Only my father knows. So when they would return home, the son would start construction on the insula. And after a while, the son would go to his father and he would say, hey, dad, is it time for me to go get my bride? Not yet. Still got some work to do. Okay. He'd go back and do some more work. Come back. Dad, is it is it time to go get my bride? No, not yet, son. A little bit more work. And eventually Jesus is going to go to the Father, and he's going to say, hey, is it time to go get my bride? And he's going to say, son, you go get your bride. And in this, sense, in this culture, 
When the father gave the groom the word that now is the time. You remember Jesus said that no man knows the time of the hour. It wasn't because he's trying to keep it secret. It's because there was a job that needed to be done to get a place ready for us. And when he would say, son, go get your bride, the groom would always come unannounced to the bride. He would come into town and everybody would get excited and everybody would celebrate because there's a bride that's going to be taking her, her husband today and she's going to be married to him. The, the, the contract, the agreement, the price that was paid, they're now going to be joined as one in a new home, in a new place. So the men would leave with them and there'd be this big celebration. The townspeople would celebrate over what was about to take place. You know, on the final night of Jesus' earthly life, he gathers these disciples and he says these words again. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, so I would have not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take myself so that where I am, you may be also. See, we read that and we miss it out of the Jewishness. But here, here's, here's what he's saying. Every disciple in that moment knew the depth of Jesus' love when he said those words. Because it was a marriage proposal. Hey guys, I'm coming back. You can't go with me, but I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The bride price is my blood. You don't understand that, but here in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be crucified. You are going to desert me. But you're going to realize that there, there's a price that has been paid for you. And I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go add a place for you in heaven, and one day I'm going to come back for you. And then something amazing happens. Jesus lifts the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new, you know what the word is? Covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant with you. It's my blood poured out for you. And he drinks a drink out of it as a groom and he hands it to the disciples as a bride. Every time that we would take the Lord's Supper, it's more than just remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's also as a reminder that He is coming back. That's the good news. He's coming back. The bad news, if you don't have a relationship with Him, when you stand in the presence of a holy God and you realize that you cannot pay the debt that you owe, you're not going to be a part of heaven. You're going to be cast into a lake of fire of all eternity. It doesn't matter if people are like, is, is, is hell really fire? Is it really this? I don't know, but here's what I know. That any place without God is a living hell. And to be separated from him for all of eternity, that's penalty enough. If you put your faith in Jesus and the death on the cross, your debt is paid. We can't pay it ourselves. Doesn't matter how hard we try, it doesn't matter about all the good things that we do. 
if we've never surrendered and fully put our faith in Jesus and living out his commandments and his teachings, we will never be able to pay the price that Jesus did. And I know there are people who are like, well, I, I'm just going to do what I need to do. I'm going to live my life the way I need to live my life. Well, you do that. But just know, when the debt is to be paid, your account will be nothing. And Jesus says, I have come to give you life. Life that's more abundant. I give you new mercies. I give you grace. But there's going to be a day it's too late. He's building for us now. And he's waiting. He's going to come back. My question is when he comes back, will he come back for you? When he opens his book on that day, will your name be written in the Lamb's book of life? heaven streets of gold and pearly gates and the Bible gives us these illustrations but y'all here's what we really need to be worried about is not what heaven's going to look like but what it's going to be and what it's going to be is Jesus and some people are going to miss that this is why we have responsibility as a church as individuals to point people towards Jesus and lead them that way because this really is a matter of life and death for many, for family members, for many of, that are in this room right now. You've never made that decision. That if you were, if you say, hey, if I died today, I, I don't know that I would be standing before a bema seat of, of God. I might be in the other line. If that's you, today salvation you can have. You can start that relationship with Jesus right now. If every with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment. If you're sitting here and you're hearing what I'm saying and you're like, listen, I, I don't know. I don't know if, what would happen. I don't have that assurance. If that's you, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. It's not a, it's not a magic prayer. It's not a special prayer. It's just a prayer of surrender to Jesus. You can say this, dear God, I surrender my life to you. You're the king. I'm your servant. I cannot pay the debt that is owed, but you did. Thank you, Jesus, for paying my debt. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, in that moment, Jesus has taken up residence in your life. That your name has been written in the book. This is the start of your journey. When we're done today with service, if, if you've prayed that prayer, I want you to come talk to me because your next step is baptism. And we're going to be baptizing here in a few weeks. But I want you to come and find me, find one of our elders. We want to pray with you. We want to help you get started on the next steps. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you have gone to prepare a place. And God, heaven, the best thing about heaven is you.
And we can get caught up in all the end times, everything. But God, we need to know that you have gone to prepare this place for us so that you can live with us in this one big, happy family. So God, I pray right now, I thank you for those that are in this room that have prayed to receive you, have asked you to to come into their lives and save them. I thank you for those that are watching online that have made that prayer today to make you their Lord and King and Savior. Just pray that you would give them the boldness to come and speak with someone so we can help them take their next steps. And God, as we sing this next worship song, I just pray that you and you alone will be glorified and be lifted as you stir our hearts to this presence that you've promised us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.